As we started into this calendar year, uh, God put on my heart to take a closer look at uh, the opening prayers the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to include in his letters to the Thessalonians and the Colossians and the Ephesians and the Philippians. And so far, um, we've looked at the letters to Thessalonica, Colossae, and Ephesus, and today we'll look at the letter to Philippi. Um, Although each of these prayers originally had a specific target, the fact that God saw fit to have them included in our Bibles highlights their still yet to be fully fulfilled nature. Each one of these opening prayers that we've been looking at since the start of the year, each one of these prayers still lives on. And they're meant to be prayed like people, by, by people like us until Jesus returns. There's a lot of ways to pray. But I love that these opening prayers are God-focused. All these apostolic prayers are focused on honoring God and pressing into and reaching out for his plans and his purposes and pulling that down into our lives. Now, if we're ever specifically directed by God to pray against a troubled situation or against the work of the devil, that's definitely the thing to do. But too many times in our own spiritual zeal, we go after the devil in our prayers and declarations. And that kind of praying invites and opens us up to direct spiritual attacks. And to this point in my spiritual journey, I've found that to be a mistake. There's enough that we have to deal with without inviting more. Many years ago, John Paul Jackson wrote a book called Needless Casualties of War about the real life dangers of spiritually zealous believers taking on and calling out the devil. Not only does the devil love the attention, but oftentimes misguided, zealous prayers have a way of making the demonic forces larger than life. It's like putting air into their balloons. They're liars. They're liars. But then we start giving them all the attention. It's like they get bigger and bigger and bigger. Listen, what the devil hates is being ignored. He hates being ignored. He hates when we turn our back on him and just stay focused on the Lord. And besides that, purposely and intentionally praying into and asking for God's help and for God's will to be done is a much better prayer focus and a more effective use of our time. And each one of these apostolic prayers points us in that direction. I also love that each one of these opening prayers release God's positive virtues into every situation and circumstance. They overflow from a place of God's grace and peace to us. And they call us up into alignment with God and his ways as we get to pray for things. Praying for things like more faith, more wisdom, more revelation, more spiritual understanding, more love, more enlightenment. Praying these prayers over our lives is a good spiritual discipline. They're also good things to pray over family and friends and those we love. And they are especially great prayers to pray over the church at large. Even right now, the Heavenly Father is raising up and preparing a bride who will be equally yoked with his son. And part of the way we, as the church, the bride of Christ, make ourselves ready for that day is by praying into the truths and revelations released in and through these apostolic prayers until we become the embodiment of these words. If you've got your Bibles, open up to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. On Paul's second missionary journey, he had Silas and Timothy with him as they went uh, from town to town, strengthening and helping uh, grow the church. Then one night, Paul had a very vivid dream. And in the dream, there was a man from Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia 
Come and help us. Paul didn't have anything on his plan to say he was headed that way, but then he had this dream. And the very next day, Paul and his team headed that way. And a couple stops later, they arrived in Philippi, which was a Roman colony in the leading city of that district in Macedonia. On the Sabbath, they went outside the city gate to the river where they expected to find a place to pray. Instead of the man in Paul's dream, they found a group of women gathered there. And one of them was Lydia, a businesswoman from Thyatira. And she opened her heart to Paul's teaching. And that very same Sabbath day, she and all the members of her household were baptized. Lydia also opened up her home as a place for Paul and his team to stay and as a place to teach about Jesus. Things got off to a pretty good start when they got to Philippi. And then things went seriously sideways. Let me read it to you. Uh, this is from uh, the middle of Acts 16, reading out of the Immersed Bible version, New Living Translation, the Messiah Translation, great, which, by the way, is a great way to read the New Testament. Uh, they took out the chapters and the verses, and they just put it in chronological order. And there's even a reading guide in eight weeks or 16 weeks. You can read through the whole New Testament. If you've never done that before, we did it several years together, several years ago as a, as a congregation. Um, but if you've never done that, we've got some of these in the bookstore. And it's just an excellent way just to read yourself through the whole New Testament. Uh, for me, when, when we did this the first time, um, uh, Romans had always been a book that was hard for me to kind of follow. It felt like too deep and too wordy and too all of that. But some, for some reason, when we read it in this, in this way and it came to here, it's like, wow, I see it now. I understand what's going on there. But just the chronological nature, it makes it a really great way. In eight weeks, can read through the whole New Testament. If you haven't done that before, I recommend it to you. Okay, anyway, back to the story. They're in Philippi. This is Acts 16. One day... As we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God and they've come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and he said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. Well, her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. The whole city is in uproar because of these Jews, they shouted at the city officials. They're teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was ordered, make sure they don't escape. So the jailer put them in the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening. And suddenly, there was a massive earthquake. And the prison was shaken to its foundations and all the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. Yeah. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, ran to the dungeon, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and he asked, sirs, what must I do? To be saved. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, 
the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. And then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. And they brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. The next morning, the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, let those men go. So the jailer told Paul, the city officials have said you and Silas are free to leave. Go in peace. But Paul replied, they have publicly beaten us without a trial and put us in prison and we're Roman citizens. And so now they just want us to leave secretly? Certainly not. Let them come themselves to release us. And when the police reported this, the city officials were alarmed to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to the jail and apologized to them. And then they brought them out and begged them to leave the city. When Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia. There they met with the believers and encouraged them once more. And then they left town. Well, a little more than 10, 10 years later, from his house arrest prison quarters in Rome, Paul sent this personal letter to a predominantly Gentile congregation in Philippi in the hands of one of their own, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus had originally brought a gift from the Philippians to Paul. And then while remaining in Rome to help take care of Paul, Epaphroditus got really, really sick and almost died. But as Paul later wrote in Philippians, God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Translation, praise the Lord, Epaphroditus didn't die, he got better. Well, this letter to the Philippians is, is a pastoral letter that almost reads like a missionary update to a group of supported friends. It's the tenderest, softest version of Paul's writings in the New Testament. Unlike his letter to the Ephesians, it was not originally intended for general circulation, but God. And now almost 2,000 years later, we're still reading it, studying it, and learning from it. Philippians chapter one, verse one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I got a chuckle out of the New Living Translation version of this opening. It says, to all of God's people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the church leaders and deacons. I was glad those guys got included in the mix, you know. I've been a few places where I've wondered about that. Are they, in the right, are they really right in the mix? But anyway, more seriously, this is the first opening prayer to identify and acknowledge those who have been set apart to lead. The overseers, bishops, or elders, depending on what version you're reading, were those who were responsible for the spiritual direction of the fellowship. The deacons were responsible for making sure the practical needs of the fellowship were being met. And for the record, the first recorded deacons in Acts 6 were chosen to serve because they were known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Both of these roles are still needed in the church today. And the best way to get into either of these roles is to steadily be about doing the work. Rather than the get a title, do the work approach, I think it's much healthier to find people who are already doing the work and then as God leads, give them a title. And once again, Paul opened with grace and peace to you. In the Amplified, it says it this way, grace, favor, and blessing to you and heart peace from God. Again, in addition to loosing a fresh impartation of each of these qualities, Paul's opening also served as a reminder to them and to every hearer and reader sense of some of what we already possess in Christ, the inexhaustible treasure of God's manifest, empowering presence and his peace that passes 
all understanding. Verse 3. I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The message says, every time you cross my mind, I break out in exclamations of thanks to God. Each exclamation is a trigger to prayer. I find myself praying for you with a glad heart. The King James Version says, making requests with joy. And as it turned out, the word joy became a theme that's weaved all the way through this letter. And part of Paul's joy flowed from their continuing partnership with him in the gospel. The Amplified defines that partnership as their fellowship with him, their sympathetic cooperation, and their contributions to what he was doing. Paul's other source of joy was his confidence that his prayers for them were in perfect alignment with the good work that God had started in them and was continuing to manifest through them. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ. That's not part of his opening prayer, but I love that verse and I use it a lot. I've spoken that verse to myself many, many times through the years, and I've spoken that verse to many other people. He who has begun a good work in you, he will be faithful. He will carry that to completion until the day of Christ. Because without any exceptions in all our lives, God has initiated good work. And that good, that's the same phrase that in Genesis 1, God used as an assessment of all his creative works. After he created, he said he saw that it was good. What God starts, he develops, perfects, and further accomplishes until it is finished. There's a torn, a torn well song I right now called Joy in the Morning. And it has a lyric line that says, if it's not good, he's not done with it yet. If it's not good, he's not done with it yet. And a New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible footnote adds, when you feel incomplete, unfinished, or distressed by your shortcomings... Remember God's promises and provision. Don't let your present imperfect condition rob you of the joy to be found in the process of knowing and growing closer to Jesus. Verse seven, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. There was a koinonia level heart connection between Paul and all the community of believers in Philippi. Their continued support, their encouragement of Paul and his ministry, no matter what, had touched a deep place in his spirit. In the message, it says it this way. God knows how much I love and miss you these days. Sometimes I think I feel as strongly about you as Christ does. When I read that, I thought, really? That's what it says? That, is that Paul? The same Paul that was like, uh, you can just go ahead. And, no, we're not leaving until they tell us we can go. The same Paul that would so many times just be right, bam, 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 the way he's saying things and teaching. The same Paul says, God knows how much I love and miss you these days. Sometimes I feel as strongly about you as Christ does. I mean, kind of ooey gooey soft Paul. I mean, I don't know. It just kind of messed with my mind. It's put him in a different category than what I'd ever seen or read his writings before. Verse nine. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight. Paul's opening prayer begins with agape love. Agape love is selfless, sacrificing love. It's a godlike, 
choice to love that doesn't require reciprocation. 1 John 4 tells us that we can absolutely know and rely upon the love God has for us because God is love. And there's no fear in agape love, but perfect love drives out fear. God loves us like that. And because we're created in his image, we can love God and other people like that too. And listen, any professed love for God, any professed love for God that doesn't find expression in a love for people is a religious mess. Any professed love for God that doesn't find expression in a beautiful love for people is a religious myth and a religious mess. One time Jesus talked about the end of the age and he gave a warning regarding agape love. Because of the increase of wickedness, the agape love of most will grow cold. Red letters, Jesus speaking to us. How many know we're living in a time when there's an increase of wickedness? I mean, it's been, as much as things change, things stay the same, but I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on all over the world, a lot of wickedness and stuff all over the world. It, at levels at least that it's broadcast and because now of social media and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you can see stuff going on the other side, just crazy stuff going on. And Jesus cautioned that in the midst of an environment like that, the agape love of most, not the agape love of some, but the agape love of most will grow cold. Listen, I have a passion in my heart to be in the remnant who keeps agape love on fire and flame to the end. I have a passion in my heart to do everything I can to inspire and encourage and help people stay in love with Jesus. I wanna be part of the remnant. I don't wanna be part that falls away. I don't wanna be part of the most because of the wickedness they fall away. There are so many different distractions, so many different things that wanna get our attention. And sometimes when you're reading all the headlines and you're seeing all the craziness and seeing all the horrible things, it can just be so overwhelming. And just, no, step up out of that. We're loved by God and his agape love is alive and well in our heart. And what the world needs most from us every day is to show up as conduits of God's agape love. There may be causes or different things that he has us stand up for, but what we need to stand up for the most for until Jesus returns is his love is flowing into us and out of us freely. That's who we are. We are called to be part of that remnant. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the ones who endure, the ones who stand firm to the end, Jesus said those people would be saved. And here's what that word saved is. It's sozoed. Saved, delivered, protected, healed, preserved, and made whole. Behind door number one, increase of wickedness, you let go of agape love. Behind door number two, increase of wickedness, you hold on to agape love, and you step into saved, delivered, protected, healed, preserved, and made whole. Which door? Let's take door number two. Come on. At the heart of Paul's prayer is the idea that more of God's agape love is always available to us. I pray that your love will abound more and more. And the word Paul used for abound emphasizes a continual overflowing. It's like there's a river flowing from the heart of God. And as we stay in that river, we'll have the ability to move in and to put agape love into practice in increasingly strengthened and more effective ways in our daily lives. In a letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Paul highlighted some characteristics of what that looks like. Agape love is patient. Agape love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It is not proud, rude, self-seeking, or easily angered. 
Agape love keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. Agape love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Agape love never fails. When we, when we look at or hear a list like that, it's pretty obvious that we've all got lots of room to grow in, in our expressions of agape love. So, sometimes we can think that we have loved to the full extent possible. Sometimes it can feel like our hearts have been stretched to or past their breaking point. Sometimes we can even believe that we have reached the limit of what can be reasonably asked of us related to love. But God, let's keep opening up our hearts and our minds to the fact that God's agape love that we have access to reaches and extends far beyond what we think, feel, or believe. In this opening prayer, Paul expressed his belief that agape love is without limits and that it will keep growing and expanding. Paul wasn't praying for them in every hearer and reader sense to be able to just maintain their current level of love. Paul wasn't praying for them in every hearer and reader sense that they would just operate at the status quo level of love. Instead, Paul was praying into and declaring over them a fresh, broadening experience of agape love. Paul knew through the Holy Spirit that agape love becomes significantly more passionate and authentic when and as it is walked out in concrete and tangible ways. Two keys that must be in place to govern healthy, abounding expressions of agape love are experiential knowledge and depth of insight. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 cautions, knowledge puffs And in and of itself, knowledge can be very deceiving and highly manipulative. We live in a day where a lot of so-called smart people are supporting and pressing the cause like like a religion, with a religious zeal for stuff that if you just think they would step back and look at it, they go, wait, wait, how could, can you not see? Can you not see that doesn't add up and that doesn't make sense? And yet there's this passion and there's this zeal and there's these protests and all the knowledge puffs up, be very deceiving, highly manipulative. And sadly, beyond that, many people love other people for a lot of misplaced, illegitimate reasons. Some love from a place of moral obligation without ever engaging their heart or their mind. Some love to try and please and repay a debt that they feel like they owe. And then some try to put someone else into their debt by loving them. To love in any of these ways misses the mark when it comes to agape love. We only love well and to the glory of God when our love for one another is driven, energized, grounded, and guided by a personal experiential knowledge of the kind of love and the way God loves us in Christ and through the Holy Spirit. True, lasting, Christ-like love must be characterized by experiential knowledge. We've got to have it. We've known it. We've experienced what we have and we know and we've experienced we can give away. What's only in our heads is pretty limited. But what we have experienced in our lives, those aspects of God's love and his provision for us and his breakthroughs, those things are not just meant to be kept for us. Those things, our experiential knowledge is what allows us to speak it and release us, gives us authority to speak it into other people's lives. True, lasting Christ-like love must be characterized by experiential knowledge and by depth of insight. 
The New American Standard used the word discernment. The New Living Translation says understanding. The King James Version says judgment. In Greek, the word Paul used meant perception by all the senses. The Passion says the rich revelation of spiritual insight into all things. And this kind of depth of insight implies purposely walking out the truths revealed to us through intuitive perceptions as well as by previously learned life lessons from our own life or witnessed in the lives of other people. Practicing agape love, it's not always simple. It's a very real place in agape love for discerning the line between loving and enabling. There's a very real place in agape love for recognizing the difference between moving in mercy and moving in what I call unsanctified mercy. God is always merciful to us. He never treats us as our sins deserve. But God has also set up things so that we have free will choice. And every choice we have creates a consequence. Good choices create good consequences. Bad choices create bad consequences. And we've got bad consequences going on in our lives. We reach out to other people and we try to get help a lot of times. And uh, when you're in a church, you get a lot of people that show up like that. And uh, they come reaching out for help at a time when they've, they've made some bad choices and they've got in over their heads. Now, what happens for us as a body is we're committed that we're family. So if, uh, if you end up in a situation where you're stuck and you think, well, I don't know anybody. If you're here, you know somebody. And I would encourage you to reach out to us. Our, our commitment is we will stand with each other. And if the situation or circumstances you're, that you're in that may feel overwhelming to you, it very well may be that we can help you get out of that situation. If when we help you get out of that situation, you're not falling right back in. Because if we help you get out and you fall right back in, we're actually enabling an unhealthy lifestyle. Now, we have people that come to us that don't uh, come to impact, that aren't part of our family. And for the most part, we, we typically don't use our benevolence funds to help people like that because we uh, support other ministries in town, CAM and some other places in town that help people in that situation. And so we tend to send them that way most of the time. Every once in a while, we break the rule and we'll just, yep, we'll help them because God says to help them. And what's crazy is when we help somebody like that, the next two weeks, the phone rings off the hook with people telling us the exact same story that they told us. It's just weird how that works. But uh, this, this thing about consequences and mercy, unsanctified mercy. One time in Fort Worth, I was working with a guy and he came to, came to see me and he was in a mess. And he was telling me just uh, all that had been going terrible in his life, told me he hadn't eaten in two or three days. Looking at him, I didn't think that was the truth. I, I, we lived in the Philippines, so we saw people that were really hungry and saw different things like that. I knew he was lying to me right from the beginning. But I was torn on the inside because, I mean, it was, it, we were church. I mean, we're supposed to help people, right? And this guy was saying he needed help, and everything in me was going, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But then I thought, well, I'm going to do it anyway. What you, I'll tell you what, I'll take you to get something to eat. Get in my car, I'll take you to get something to eat. So uh, he gets in my car, and uh, we're headed up the road, and he, he says, where are we going? I said, well, I'll take you up to Jack in the Box up here on the corner. They've got uh, double cheeseburgers that are amazing. They've got a great price on right now. I'll get you two or three, whatever you, want, whatever you like. And he said, I don't really like Jack in the Box. <laughs> in an amazing Christian love and mercy, I stopped my car and told him to get out. And that was the end of that story. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I don't know. I still this day, I don't know if that's right, but there was nothing else I could do. It's like, okay, no, that's done. I know you'd been lying to me the whole time, but I had stepped into unsanctified mercy. See, I was trying to be, I was trying to be more kinder, kinder than God. 
to him. And there was something God was working in their life. And so that's one of the things with agape love. It's like discerning that line between loving and enabling, between mercy and unsanctified mercy. It's a, it's a very real deal. And it's just not always super clear to see in the face of many kinds of like different feelings and difficult decisions connected to confusing thoughts and competing emotions and choices. We need to keep asking for and drawing on the help of the Holy Spirit so that we can move with an informed love that is discerning and with a depth of love that distinguishes between what is appropriate, generous, and supportive and what's just being taken advantage of. Here's a key point. People who do not know or who do not have a solid biblical doctrine cannot have this kind of discernment. Paul prayed for a depth of insight that has to do with the practical application of deep experiential knowledge found and obtained in and through God's written and rhema words. So in a very real sense, our love is composed by our theology. And our level of insight is determined by our applications of that theology. In a very real sense, our love is composed by our theology and our level of insight is determined by our application of that theology. Again, back to verse nine. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in experiential knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The NIV's so that you may discern is better translated so that you may approve things so that you may approve things. It's the word used for testing the purity of gold. And so one purpose for abounding more and more in agape love combined with experiential knowledge and depth of insight is to gain a better ability to evaluate people, places, and things more accurately. The Amplified says, so that you may surely learn to sense what is vital and approve and prize what is excellent and of real value recognizing the highest and the best and distinguishing the moral differences. This kind of approved things describes a continuous action of sifting through and analyzing all that comes at us, looking for excellent, looking for best, for a specific reason, that we may be pure and blameless. The King James used the word sincere, that we may be pure, blameless, sincere until the day of Christ. We live in a world full of less than excellent and less than best temptations, ideas, and principles that simply do not line up with an honest reading, studying, and application of the scriptures. Later in Philippians, Paul called them and us to be blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which we shine like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life. However, further complicating our approved thing skill is the reality that all of us are still very much in process as we work out and walk out our salvation with reverence to God. Bottom line, everything must be personally tested and approved. And in all that, even as much as we tend to prefer peace and order, a very real aspect of this approved things often involves conflict. One of the scenes that was in episodes one, two, and three of The Chosen, uh, something Jesus said in Matthew 10, Jesus said, you think I came to bring peace, but not peace, a sword, a sword. You know, sometimes there's more than one right answer. Sometimes 
what the Lord has called me to, what he said, this is right, this is what I want you to do, is different than what he's called you to and what he's told you is right. One of the mistakes that's made in the church throughout the years is somebody takes, okay, here's what God's called me to do, so I'm gonna make, that's what you're called to do, because if I'm called to do it, you're called to do it. And then it gets all weird and religious and all kinds of judgmental stuff and all that kind of stuff. Here's the way to do it. You got somebody you wanna share what God has called you to? Share what God has called you to. This is what he's called me to do. This is the place he's called me to stand. He said, I could do this and I can't do this. What's he called you to? Where's the line that he's put in your life? Okay, you hold me to what I just shared with you and I will hold you to what you just shared with me. And in that way, iron sharpens iron. But I'm not putting mine on yours and I'm not taking yours on mine. We're each individually walking out before the Lord. What is right for me to do? What have you called me to do? And sometimes that is rightness that will last all the way till Jesus comes. And sometimes that's what's right in this season. And then in the next season, I can do something a little different. It's just a constant journey with the Lord. But that thing about right and wrong and those kind of things, it can get tricky. And so when we're trying to approve things, it takes a healthy spiritual development maturity to be, be able to distinguish between what God has called each one of us to be and to do and to be okay with the diversity of opinions about that. Everybody didn't have to agree that, oh yeah, I agree, that's what you're called to. Everybody didn't have to agree with that. But we have to know it ourselves and we have to be okay with that diversity of opinions. Related to approving things, what we should be aiming for is more about finding what God approves rather than what God forbids. Preston, what do you call me to do? What have you approved rather than what are you keeping me from? And to that end, here's some approve things questions. What does the Bible have to say about it? Will it bring glory and honor to God? Will it be beneficial or detrimental to me or someone else spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally? Could it spur someone else onto love and good deeds or would it cause another person to stumble? What do I sense in my spirit related to this thing? And would I make this same assessment and decision if Jesus was standing right here with me and he always is? And he always is. Our answers to some basic questions like these help us get positioned for sincere, pure, and blameless until the day of Christ, as well as in the meantime, being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That word filled is the same Greek word as fulfill that Paul used in some of his earlier prayers, which describes being filled all the way to the full, to make replete, to cram a net to capacity, to level up a hollow place, to fully furnish, to totally satisfy, to verify. So once again, Paul was praying for the undeniable hand of God to be seen and evident as the fruit of righteousness in every aspect of our daily lives. The Amplified defines this righteousness as both living in right standing with God and also living in right doing. And then it added an ultimate objective to the honor and praise of God that his glory may be both manifested and recognized. The New Living Translation says, may you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. And a life application footnote adds, fruit of salvation character traits flow from a right relationship with God. When we love God rightly, he produces godly actions in us. When we love God rightly, he produces godly actions in us. And this fruit of righteousness involves more than a life of kindness. It requires integrity. Integrity in such areas as financial matters, our speech, 
family conflicts, and in our relationships with all different kinds of people. Paul wrapped up this prayer with a request for the Philippians to be filled and fruitful. In John 15, Jesus himself clearly told us how that can happen. Remain, abide in me, Jesus said, and I will remain and abide in you. You cannot bear fruit unless you remain and abide in me. If you remain and abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And this is to my Father's glory because you will show yourselves to be my disciples. Remember, I chose you. I appointed you and put you in the world to go and to bear fruit, fruit that won't spoil and fruit that will last. Agape love is the most essential and powerful dynamic for creating lasting, sustainable, enduring, positive change and improvement. Through a growing base of personal experiences with agape love, we get equipped to move in love, to be the change, and to impact the world around us with the light and love of Jesus. And here at Impact, that is why we're here, to impact the hill country and beyond with the light and love of Jesus. Let me finish up reading this prayer over us from the message by once you stand and I'll read it over us. So this is my prayer, that your love will flourish and that you'll not only love much, but you'll love well. Learn to love appropriately. You need to use your head and test your feelings so that your love is sincere and intelligent, not sentimental gush. Live a lover's life, circumspect and exemplary. A life Jesus will be proud of. Bountiful in fruits from the soul. Making Jesus Christ attractive to all. And getting everyone involved in the glory and praise of God. Lord, that's who you've called us to be. That's who we want to be. Keep drawing every part of our lives into alignment and agreement with that. That your love abounding more and more in us our experiences and our knowledge of you increasing ever more. The depth of insight that comes from those personal experiences, you helping us to, to move with an informed love that ministers and moves in sync with and led by and in step with the Holy Spirit through every circumstance and situations that comes our way. Help us, Lord, when, we, when we're confused and we can't sort out the different emotions and the different choices to find you in the middle of it, to find and hear your words and this is the way, walk in it, and then to align and do that. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We thank you for these prayers that have been preserved in the scripture. We thank you that they're still living and still so available for us to pray into. Help us use them. Help us use them to conform us more and more into the image of your son. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.